off an interview. Today on the show, we have Dustin Galish of uh, Trino Leaves. Um, Trino Leaves has been a band that C-Level and Jay from Studio 44 have um, circled around for the last, I don't know how many years. He says 10. I don't think it's been that long. I don't know. So they very much have been like a peer in a way, um, peer in the classroom. Um, but it's been awesome to see them grow. And every time they come out with a new record, it's completely different. The band's bigger, the band's smaller. And we get into that in the conversation. But Trina Leaves has a new album out now called Eyes of Xylem. And it's one of their biggest conceptual ones. It has a comic that accompanies it. It has a film, like a live um, performance of the of the, the whole record, um, live at Howard's. And as part of the press thing, I got to see it. It comes out on March 9th. This probably going to be put out before then. And uh, it's incredibly executed. And the comic itself, just to come up with the storyline and to pick every every scene along the way as long as well as writing the the narrative and performing it is a next level it's almost like a because the internet the childish gambino approach getting there that's a way smaller that's a way insane project but this is a, a step towards that taking a concept and making it more than just a thumbnail and some wave files it's exciting it's exciting to see your friends do well and do what they want to do and grow in an artistic way in the direction you've kind of seen them grow. Like, um, I think about some of the early, uh, tree, no leave record, tree, no leaves record records. And it's weird to put too many S's in that, um, that Jay showed me. And like, there was this space there, this like space they were playing with. But on this record, I really think they honed it in. It's a really cool record. I recommend you check it out. Um, speaking of Jay, Jay works at a studio called Studio 44. You can locate them by Studio44Cleveland at gmail.com or Studio44Cleveland on Facebook and Instagram for any of your audio needs. Maybe you have video needs. Maybe you have streaming needs. Whatever your needs are, Jay can make it sound good. Um, so hit up Jay from Studio 44, Studio44Cleveland at gmail.com or Studio44Cleveland, Facebook, and all the other social media goodness. Now, before we get into the interview, if you can like, subscribe, rate, review the podcast and all the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool artists and sharing their insights with you. Um, yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Greatly appreciated. Okay, here we go. Dustin. Awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So um, tell me about the Kit Kat Club. Yeah, the Kit Kat Club. So, you know, years ago, we actually wrote a song uh, right. called the, that referenced the Kit Kat Club. I think it was called The Grand Ballin'. And uh, it was something that was super kind of, we just liked how it sounded. I think initially when we were trying to make some type of, uh, you know, fan club newsletter, something that, you know, I, I felt like I had to get some type of name other than just the Trino Leaves newsletter. Right. Uh, and so it's kind of stuck with that. And it's been a really cool thing to reference. And I think that uh, with the Kit Kat Club, it, that actual term is a, it's from the 1700s. And what it was, is like a, a group of people who were considered to be sort of eccentric artists. Uh, people living outside of the cultural norms would would sort of gather and sort of create art, do a lot of things underground because at the time, you know, there were right. a lot of limitations for that. And they they called it the Kit Kat Club. And I was like, well, damn, that sounds great. And, you know, uh, my wife, Sarah, at the time was in the band. And so we were like, yeah, let's sold. Let's go with that. And so uh, and plus, who doesn't love a good Kit Kat bar? So right. I think it was uh, <laughs> a nice little double meaning. So well, I thought that was like so. One of the earliest recordings I've heard of you guys was the Java, Java Rave, the live yeah. thing. Because um, mm -hmm. Jay, Jay, our good friend Jay from Studio 44, he um, 
he when he started to work with you guys, he was showing me stuff when I would come visit him in Tiffin. And mm -hmm. um, I remember listening to that on the way down one ride, and I'm like, what is... What does that mean? And that's way cool. I thought it was a, a bit like a, you know, candy bar <laughs> reference and like, yeah, yeah, that's way cooler. That's like this collective. And uh, that's what's fascinating about a lot of your work is it's not like it's everything's got like this deeper meaning. And like to speak on the Kit Kat Club reference, that mm -hmm. live take is this really vast, full, like big band sound. But when it came down to the album with a, a tragic magic. Mystics, I think mm -hmm. it's the first, like, your guys' first, like, yeah. full, full length one. Mm -hmm. um, it was much more bare bones. Yeah. And uh, so, what, and what I've noticed throughout, like, your progression as a group, like, it seems to grow in size and then shrink. So, what initially kind of happened until that first release? Was it always a big band or how did uh, stuff get rolling? You know, the long story short of like the members of the band and how I've sort of like tried to explain it is that, you know, this band really has worked through seasons. It's sort of like the symbology is sort of a little ridiculous at times, but it <laughs> sort of is true in many ways. And sort of even the name of the band being Trino Leaves actually is singular. And I actually, when I initially started the band, I didn't think of it that way. It wasn't like, oh, this is Dustin's project. But in many ways, that name then lent itself to sort of seasonal change, sort of shedding itself of what leaves were no longer necessary or no longer wanted to be there and wanted to do their own things. And so there's always been this transition in many ways, almost every year. So I actually was ref when I looked back at all of our releases recently, cause I had some time to do that. Literally of the 16 releases we've put out this, the same members are not in any of those. They are literally <laughs> like every single one of those releases is a different incantation of the band. And I never really realized that was sort of other than myself, obviously is the only, right. you know, sort of uh, thing in there. And I think, the change in sound is something that was not necessarily thought like that wasn't the idea. I think it, but it just sort of happened more, more naturally. And I think when I decided to embrace that, I think that's sort of what's lent the band to be a little more interesting and sort of not redefining itself, but just adapting and changing, which is sort of, again, sort of a reference to a tree, you know, withstanding yeah. all that change, but still being able to sort of provide fruits from that tree at times and sort of to create new music, which is really where we were. I mean, we've, have legitimately been a two-piece like when jay and i worked together and even sarah and i at the very beginning were a two-piece for a moment um but i think you know it got up to six perhaps i think it might have even been seven <laughs> at one point you know and i think yeah. i think when we had, had played some shows with robin blake experiment i think we were at our sort of full capacity of right. uh, members and things and so you know, at the time we had really embraced our more jam band feel and that was that that setup was definitely more of a, a live necessity than sort of a studio thing and i think uh I just sort of like, yeah, it's like I've been embracing that and sort of it's almost like it, it's not that the band has ever stopped, you know, but we definitely change and reevaluate. And so it almost like, is like a new band each time just under the same moniker. And I like that. Was it was it hard to accept that, that that this fluency, like uh, the be as flux with it initially? Did you have like a thought out thing that you were going for and then accepting that this um, kind of endless movement of members and sounds is all part of it was that easy to roll into it was, actually wasn't i think uh you know in retrospect there was the band had become a four piece if you listen to the live of java ray that was myself uh sarah smith eli vasquez and tony papa and so that was the first time the band really extended itself to that bigger sound and uh at that point that was like for me the first time i felt like the band had something it really did feel like it before that it was a trial it was an experiment it was just really 
trying to see what was possible and there wasn't a lot of focus. And I think when that form of the band existed, it made me more serious, but that band actually imploded during recording the, the album previously. We broke up during the recording of it. And which is what we have now learned is that's not that uncommon for that to happen, right. uh, for that to change relative to people's lives and things like that and just the nature of things. And so when that happened, there was definitely a point where I said, hey, I'm gonna, this is the end of Trina Lee's. I'm going to do something else. And Eli Vasquez, actually, I remember I was sitting at a, a Mr. Spots in Bowling Green, the subs place, and sort of uh, reflecting, reading, you know, subs and cheese. And he, I told him <laughs> I was going to change the band. And he just looked at me and was like, no, you don't, don't do that. Like, this is your thing. Keep this going. And I still remember that conversation. It means a lot to me. And I respected him in a lot of ways. He's still a really prolific, sort of unique artist in Columbus. And so I think that's when I realized that I could adapt and continue to change. And from then on, it was, you know, it was whoever showed up, I embraced that. And that's what Trino is became. And I think that's, we still are that way, which is really great, you know, 10 years yeah. later. Eli's a beautiful character, man. Like he plays a role in so many different, so many different, like just him, like in all the different bands he's been in. And to point out that he knows that like sticking to like one moniker, being like known as one thing's way more beneficial than doing a bunch of starting over in that sense over and over again, sticking to one thing and just kind of defining that as you and whatever that is can change. I think is solid teacher advice. Cause he was a, that's how Jay met him as a teacher. Yes. Um, that's how, that's how Jay and I started working together was through him. He was, he was really the person who, because he was a part of that disconnect was moving on, but sent Jay my way and sort of, and even previously I was doing solo work. So I guess I was wrong. I, I put out a couple of weird EPs that were solo and, those aren't out there, out there now because it was really just me dealing with the chaos of my life. There's right. some really cool stuff there that it's been released, but this band always felt like it, it it didn't feel right just as me. It had to be this community idea to sort of bounce ideas off of. And so I think him telling me to stick to something means a lot because I it, it is hard to establish a name and it's, it takes forever. And so starting over is like you've seen so many artists who do that because of the nature of bands breaking up. And uh, I think for me, it was important to stick to the aesthetic the band had created, which was, which didn't start with just like four people in a garage and we were like, let's start a band. You know, it was a very strange start for a band. Anyhow, and it's the only band I've right. ever been in. I mean, I sort of, this is the only project I've ever <laughs> been in. And sort of, uh, for me, that doesn't feel that way because of all the different people I've worked with. That's a, well, that's a beautiful perspective of it. So it's always in a way, not to me, like when I look back and with like sea level, it's always been me and Cody you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, even though we've had different people in it, it's kind of been the same, the same routine. And me and Cody have played in different bands. And, like, I've subbed for a lot of people and filled in for a lot of people and expanded horizons that way. But as far as, like, um, that's, a, that's really cool that you can s look at your own project as, like, multiple, ex I don't know, different existences and, like, different, um, different complete bands. And, uh, yeah, it really, it really is, because I think that is uh, a lot of bands can get trapped in that formula, and so right. it's not bad. It can work at times, and I think there's success in that, and there's there's ways that that works, but I think, uh, yeah, you know, you, I, I see you as a contemporary in the sense of you've been at this for a while, too, and it's sort of, you have to adapt to changes, but for me, I think, you know, I, the thing that I've gotten closest to having something like that was our previously guitarist, Calvin Cordy, who had worked with us for five, nearly six years, so in many yeah. ways, half of the existence of a band, and I think... He was really, um, really the only one that over the years really became almost synonymous with what we were doing. But at the same time, it was more just through his longevity and what he was doing. It wasn't necessarily 
he took on more responsibilities and roles. I think it's just his sound became more synonymous with what we do. And so it's fun to like, you know, this is the record that we were, we just put out has no electric guitar. It's the first time I've ever done that too. So that's like a, in any ways, it's like embracing the change, the right. change even more, you know, it's like, well, that's gone. Well, let's do everything possible to make sure that no one notices it, you know? And so I think that's like fun to do too. No, well, the new album itself, like built, so kind of like in a weird comparison, listening to that Java rave, that, that mm-hmm. very first live one, there, there's this, like, you can tell this band's working within this space. You have like this really cool, just, or Trino Leaves has this really cool relationship with space within the music. Like there's this, this, this room for stuff to build. And usually that's what happens in your tunes. And this is just what I've noticed from hearing your music for years now and seeing you progress and hearing it via Jay and like, but what's really cool about this newest record is it sounds like perfect. The space is like, it's, it's like that. Well, the play space is, I'm sure there's a Miles Davis quote. It's not about the notes, you know what I mean? But to really, to really work that space and make it feel right is not easy to do. And I think you guys knocked it out on this new record live and, and, um, in the studio set version of it, which is really cool that you did both like the live at Howard's and then, uh, use that as like a you guys streamed it right actually it's, it hasn't streamed yet it was it's, oh, okay uh, it, so so yeah it, it was released as a companion with the album um but we're actually streaming the concert film on the 9th of march okay um, cool so there's like you can actually do that at howard's at 8 p.m sort of the day of we're also streaming on a twitch channel and it's doing it and then for everyone who sort of couldn't do those things or it'll be on our youtube page too sort of after so we, we kind of wanted to because we don't have that traditional uh release show right. you know we all know right. that that's the tradition of that and they're not always the most successful events but in many ways it, there's a tradition there and like it's like that's the best way to really get to your your core fans to to get them the work that you put in and try to you know support art and so right and just to celebrate yo we finished the thing like yeah, it is a, it really is a celebration <laughs> it's like a it's a birth thing yeah it's like a birthday right. party for the album you know and so we never know where like how the kid's going to end up if anyone you know wants to, to spend time with them or whatever it is but i think uh so we we didn't want to lose that but at the same time it, it was also it forced us because the nature of the album and how we recorded it was everything remote you know we were never in the same room at all for the we never wow. even the okay. songs and how they were developed they, we had two sessions in early 2019 right but, and now barn or something these were actually in our uh, saxophone uh, player's uh, living room. Oh, okay. Uh, and we just sort of uh, barely went through some progressions. It was like I had two progressions, and I was like, hey, what do you guys think? And we kind of jammed on them, recorded them with a cell phone, and then that was it. And then the pandemic hit, and it was kind of gotcha. like, oh, well, that could have been sort of a tough place to start. And we just sort of said, well, let's just keep moving now. And so, yeah, very different process. And I think we wanted to perform it live because that's still a big part of what we do. And I think it, it forced us to have to bring these tracks to life in a way too, where with a, a concept album, sometimes you maybe didn't think like, how can we actually perform this? You know, that's, right. you know, and I think that was important for us because we wanted to sort of reemerge with that more of a performance idea based with how we perform, not as much in the, the, the improvisation, but in the execution of something that's more narrative based. So. Right. It's inter- like the narrative based thing makes that improv, tricky because you don't want to stray too far away and lose the purpose of of the space and i think you guys did as far as like um the live take of it you guys did a really good job of sticking 
to it and moving through it. And it was like very well shot. So in a way, like this weird, like lack of a normal celebratory birth of a record lent this way to really capture that narrative, I think. And like you're doing multiple, multiple different ways to explain this narrative with this record. Like you got the comic, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and then the the comics is also like on the, those lave cut vinyls. Yeah, those are pretty sweet. Lave cuts are I cool mean, and affordable. That was such a <laughs> I mean things. I think that was a big part of reevaluating the where we were with the pandemic too was how to distribute music in a way that felt unique and for us, you know, too many bands rely on streaming stats and they stare at right. their Spotify to, to, to see that as sort of success and how the people are experiencing music and that's such a a narrow avenue and I think right. For us, and, and also making music that we feel is accessible to any age, we wanted to embrace all of that and try to create something that we thought anyone would want to buy because, one, it, it's physical, it's tangible, and it was just something unique, it, it, again, for us to, I don't know, just try something we hadn't seen before. It's like It was like stealing ideas from everybody who had put something out but trying to package it together in, in a new way. And right. most of it's done really for, from just trying to give each song its own artwork in a way that really would help the narrative because I didn't want it just my vocals to be the only thing, which traditionally is kind of what you're stuck with with some performance or concept records is really lyrics, you know, perhaps there's like, you know, album art, but that's, I didn't want that to be the focus. I wanted the instrumentation to guide you to the artwork as well and give you abilities to kind of figure it out for yourself. And that's like, I hope we accomplished that, you know, and sort of, uh, as opposed to just putting out, you know, a square image right. and being like, Hey, everybody, it's a concept record, you know, <laughs> figure it we'll out. It out. <laughs> yeah. And the idea too, because it's, it's shorter, it's a 30 minute piece. We wanted to make it sort of episodic in the idea to build off of doing more of this. Certainly it's, it is a two parter. And so this was a first attempt at creating something that we could then build off again. And so I think in, in trying to listen to the record more than once, I, I, I appreciate that. And so for us, I think adding more elements will drive people to want to go back and maybe catch more of what, the story was for a second time or third time. That makes sense. And just to visually explain it, you know what I mean? So much of a story, it can be visual and so much of like mm-hmm. lining it up with the sonic soundscape, you know what I mean? It makes that, that narrative clearer. Yeah. I mean, there's some records sure. I've listened to forever or songs I've listened to forever. And I'm like, wait, that's one that's about, or that's what they were saying. Like even just looking at the lyrics can change your perspective. You're like, Oh, because you can stretch out a syllable word in a way that make mm-hmm. it fit rhythmically that may not sound like how you would say it. And, yeah. uh, but, uh, so xylem is a really interesting concept as far as mm-hmm. what it is, as far like this, uh, this, um, transportation of water up through the roots to the leaf to be evaporated in this endless pool. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, it's interesting cause the cells that make up xylem are dead cells in the plant. So right. like they, they're, they're like this hard, like, like path. And, um, the, the word, the Greek, uh, what do you call it? The Greek, uh, uh, Greek word for, for xylem, it comes from xylon, which means wood. And it's interesting with the tree, no leaves, but a tree with no leaves is kind of wood. Mm-hmm. Um, but my question with that is why eyes to represent that? I think, uh, the xylem, like you say, is really, it, it's, that's representing the, the nature of life and death, right? So right. this uh, cycle is sort of when something is birthed, it inevitably has a, a death. But the tree in many ways is sort of has this ability to kind of reinvent itself over and over. And so my idea was to take two central characters who 
the eyes were really were how they're going to experience this this life and death sort of narrative. And I think what I wanted to do is we've played with perception. I think that's an overall theme that if I've had anything through lyrics over the last 10 years, it's been about the sort of gray nature of perception and, re, and our own unique views of reality. And I right. think that's something that I come back to a lot and sort of, yeah, again, so we, we all write about, I think a lot of the artists have sort of a, a theme that we all come back to in some ways. Now we can deviate from that at times, but I think there is this sort of like overall theme. I think it's like we like certain bands, we like certain artists because there's some overarching thing that they're communicating that you relate to. And I think right. for me, that's a big one to sort of like, but when you think something's a certain way, like I'd like to sort of throw you in a different direction and go, oh, that's actually not the way it was. And I think the world operates that way. You know, last year we obviously saw like how you can, people can see the same video and the same news story and have very different right. perceptions of what right. that means and what's occurring in their reality. And so I wanted to make that the core of the narrative with these two characters, Elder and Willow, who both see or experiencing this life and death experience in a very quick way, but from very different perspectives, even though they are experiencing the exact same thing from start to finish. And I think that was a cool idea to take the duality, which exists in a lot of philosophies and sort of show how they're both necessary for the, for their experience. And their cycle then feeds itself to the future ideas of how they can then be used for others purposes. And so it's like that seed to root the tree. There is something to leave is very symbolic throughout that thing. So, uh, yeah, the guy, Xylem was cool too in many ways because when I was researching it, I did a lot of research, even the, the trees themselves, like right. the willow and the elder, it wasn't because they sounded cool. I mean, those are great names. Like, you can almost yeah. name your kid those, but it really was. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to just pick something that, you know, I spent really hours researching different trees, what they re represented relative to certain symbolisms, other cultures, indigenous cultures all over the world, and like what their perspective on trees were because, you know, I'm obviously drawn to them. And so um, that was a really cool idea um the tibet book of the dead it might be is also something i referenced a bit there was quotes throughout that i sort of tried to be inspired by there's a song called the elephant in the room that really is right. diving into that into that space and i think that was something that myself and the artists were also learning together and i think that was his experience through a lot of these themes we kind of experienced them together so it was like i was exposing some, to some ideas and i think it was cool to see his process as an artist so was that actually happened through the through the process of making it? Yeah. Gotcha. Was that the elephant in the room? That's kind of like death. Is that what it's alluding towards? Yeah, like, like the ele the elephant in the room now is sort of coming to terms with the reality that, that this is coming to an end, and sort of right. how are you going to how are you going to talk about that? How are you? Gonna, and then this is really the first time that the two characters have the ability to have a conversation, and sort of subconsciously. Um, and the elephant in the room, who's sort of this guru, but is also, he represents the reality of the situation, which the elephant in the room is that they're going to die. Mm. And so, um, but they embrace that in a way. And so they become a seed for future use. So it's like, that's sort of, uh, that's a big theme. You know, I think we, a lot of us had people who have passed away over the last few years, and I always want to come to terms with that in a creative way. Right. And I think uh, there's some of that in this film as well. And so, or in this, uh, the story that we were trying to create. It's a beautiful way to put it. And it's almost a, like the Ganesh character, right? Um, Very much so. Yes. So, so the Andy, of obstacles. Yes. Andy Thomas, who is the artist, right, was really identified with that and actually had referenced some characters that were inspired by him as well. So I think that was, I saw those signs when we first started talking about the project. And so, uh, so I'm glad he embraced that. You and Andy worked together, right, at a screen printing spot? 
Yeah, we worked here. At, there's a place called Aardvark, uh Screen Printing around here. They were in here in BG for 25 years or so. And so uh, I did graphic design, and he he also did that. But his job was he was the guy pressing the ink. And so that was sort of we met that way. Um, strangely enough, and I, I don't think I've ever told him this, but like when I was able to listen to his job interview, because like my boss <laughs> strangely did it right behind me. And I was like, yeah. And he, the way he talked, he was he had sort of this like uh, arrogance about him, and I actually like initially was off put about it, but then I was like, oh, he's just trying to get a job, like he should be that way, and I respected it. But then when I met the guy, I was like, he wasn't like that at all. He was literally like the sweetest, nicest person. I just was like drawn to him, and was like, all right, I feel bad that I misread you. It's rare for me to do that. I don't try to judge, but I think you know, I was probably a little trying to protect my job or something too. I was like, oh, damn, this guy's probably good at Goodness. illustrator or something. Yeah. But uh, anyhow, but yeah, that's how we met, and so. We really just were friends. We he, he played trumpet, uh, Toledo music, um, school of music, or to the school of art. That's where he comes from. And so um, he loved comic books too. We traded comic books. You know, we gave each other some stuff. And I remember it was fun. What we traded was almost more like teen comic stuff. It was like not really heavy stuff. I think I gave him like this a book that where a kid has diabetes and he has like sort of these psychedelic dreams and he's like oh. trapped in his house trying to get his insulin. It's a really great story. What is that? Um, what, what? Uh, it's by Sean Murphy. Oh, I mean, I can't remember the name of the, the, the story right now. Um, Grant Morrison wrote it. Okay. Um, yeah. It's, it's a really, it's a really good one. Uh, if Grant, and then, Grant and, Morrison's and, and a great. Love his work. Yeah. Right. So, like, and, so we had this bond of comics and he also, he think he shared with me a, uh, an X-Men one where it was like the worst X-Men. And it was this guy about, this kid who his superpowers that he could blow up, but he would die. And he was like, he was like a suicide bomber, but he was like, well, if I use my power, I'm done. Right. And he was like, this, and he's like, this sucks. You know? So <laughs> I think what was cool about that is like, it kind of, we had sort of a kid like bond in the sense where, and I'm drawn to very dark themes sometimes in comics, but if you look at the art that we ended up creating, it has a, a childlike quality to it, which I love. And I think that's something that I'm appreciative too. Uh, that's how it started. I mean, I really just, I, I literally had, a legitimate fever dream in the sense of like this narrative came i wrote it down a piece of paper in the morning it was like this very small piece of paper and i just kept cramming more and more stuff on it took it to work uh worked on it at work for the first hour you know kind of sending emails and then uh i was like all right i'm gonna tell andy like i think i can like pitch him an idea because i didn't want to speak hey you want to make a comic book i don't have any idea i was like i was like man i got like a treatment here like this is pretty it seemed to come to me pretty quickly and so he said yeah and then uh, started sending him demos, and we worked on it really together to the very end. Sort of, he was part of the, the songwriting process, so he was able to create the art with the material as it developed and as it sort of came to fruition too. Which was that's unique for an artist, right? Right. That's especially if that's not like, from what I understand, that's not his cup of tea, right? He's never really done a comic before. No. Uh, yeah, it was like we both learned how to do a comic together. You know, layout. We referenced other. Um, you know. I brought in some material that I was like, Hey, I really like this artist or sort of the way they play with colors and layout. And sort of, we looked into some, like some French stuff that I was really into that had these big sort of more landscape stuff. And right. so I was drawn to that because we didn't want, we weren't going to have like thought bubbles and dialogue. So it definitely was going to be more art based. And so, um, it was cool to learn together. I mean, I, I took sort of an editor position when she would throw stuff at me, I would, give ideas back. You know, yeah. I, I had treatments for characters, how they, how I thought they looked, you know, it was sort of, I would get them a starting point and many times it would change pretty dramatic from where I was, but never too much to where he, he always got the the heart of what I was trying. So, so it was almost, cool. Like, I mean, we were adding stuff to the very end, you know, every, every song title was actually hidden in the artwork. So we did a lot of stuff where we tried to use every ounce of the page too, so that it wasn't, right. you know, that they, this was the only place we had to sort of help the narrative. 
so that's uh it made me appreciate comic book and sort of graphic novel creation in that process right because that's that's a heavy that's not an easy thing to do there's a lot of work that goes into it but it's interesting because your collaboration with this is almost like your relationship with your band in a way it's like this flux and learning to work with having a thing but having the flux to to flex with whoever you're with to make the mm-hmm. the final thing so it's like you've been training for this the whole time yeah i felt like that it was like <laughs> you know i've i've approached a lot of things that way where it's like it was getting prepared to to, to take a, a project like this on and do it in the way that i thought was good i mean i had worked with artists for so long and felt like i had a good way to communicate with them and be respectful of, of their ideas too you know i think uh, i love that's a big part of why i like producing music is to to work with artists, help curate them and help display their art. Cause a lot of artists are shy about their stuff and they don't always have a place to share it. And I think I love that back and forth between art and music. It's a big part of why I was drawn to music in many ways. So yeah, kind of the touch upon that. Has it always been key keys with you? No, uh, started for me as a looper with a, a Fender Strat and a bunch of delay pedals. And that was really for me, what I did for probably the first three to five years of the band, you know, did more wall of sound. I was big, really into post rock gotcha. ambient yeah, yeah. stuff. Robert Fripp, uh, wasn't as, you know, intricate of what he was doing, but inspired by the, his approach to sounds. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was my approach, you know, and over the next, there was like a two to three year span where I started playing keyboards and doing more synth stuff. I bought like a micro cord and sort of blended those two styles together. But, uh, at one point, ended up purchasing uh the family got a nord uh this beautiful keyboard from sweden and it's just like this incredible piece of work and so i was inspired to say you know what with calvin who was our guitarist at the time like let you can really control that and i really want to dive into keys and so when i did that i just abandoned the guitar and that's been really three three years now that i've been focused entirely on keyboards which i i really love it, it's i can communicate that instrument far better to my bandmates and what i'm doing and i'm better at sort of listening to them with that instrument. The guitar had always been sort of a the spider web of craziness. You know, I right. never really mastered it in a way, you know. And didn't put it in the work too, to be honest. But it the keyboard just like, I don't know, it just felt like I could communicate my ideas better. It's it's laid out in a way where you can see it. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's so visual. Yeah, very, so visual for me. Yeah. Very so it's just like, like hey <laughs> like I'm really easy. If you can look at these twelve keys, like we're good to go. Yeah, so even when I started playing, I had to write like what the native, like the name of the note was on the keys. It was pretty amateurish, but you guys you know, start somewhere, there, you know. But you guys start somewhere now, you know. Thankfully, I, I know what every note is now. But like, yeah, so like, but it wasn't, and I was diving in and performing on it with that sort of base knowledge of just, I guess I'll just hit these things. It sounds cool. Yeah, <laughs> so that's it, been an approach for even guitar, you know, more traditional lessons and vocals as well. You know, the only back, the only traditional vocal stuff is I did some choir in middle school. You know. Yeah, that was about it. So I don't, I don't know how much that reflects <laughs> nowadays, but <laughs> it's a, I enjoyed it. But I remember, yeah. like, damn, I really liked this, you know. But uh, you know, got into sports, but uh, you know, it's late '90s. There wasn't a whole lot of crossover at that time. So right. I still remember I could who sang in choir and played basketball, and I was like, "You can do that." <laughs> and it wasn't even weird. I was just like, "Oh, that's pretty cool, actually." Yeah, you know, it was weird thinking about that now. I hope it's far more common for athletes to be, you know, musicians now. I really hope that's true. I think so. Yeah. I think I would think so. I think a lot of things are much more like accepted now, but like, like it's interesting, like the, how the social construct would put that in your mind that you really, you're either one or the other. And like, but it's strange. 
yeah, that skill set, that that dedication, that um, like self determination, really fits into both of those outlets. You know, what I mean, the same uh, the same work ethic you need to get up every day and do the drills, the same thing you need to do to get up and run the scales. And it's interesting, said, like, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. No, 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 you can go. No, I mean, that's very true. I, I have had that same realization myself when trying to not be bitter about how much time I spent playing sports as a child. And you know, I didn't touch the guitar until I graduated college. And so it was like, for me, there's this part of me was like, man, if I had to just touch this, an instrument earlier, you know, maybe I'd be in a different place, you know, in the sense of whatever success would be. And I think, but right. now when I see it, that time as an athlete really helps shape teamwork, the ability to adapt not seeing failures as a way, as a means to stopping. And I think a lot of musicians, you know, struggle with that. I can relate, you know, our previous record did not have the success that many of us had expectations for. And you also learn not to have expectations, you know, because right. then it stopped, then it stops you from making the next thing. And I think for me, um, sports helps with that. You know, if you, if you don't like, if, if you want to quit when you lose sports, isn't the place for you, you know, and I played baseball, which, you know, if you're successful 30% of the time, you're a hall of famer, you know? So it's like, a, it's like a sport <laughs> built on failure in some ways, you know, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. It really is. It's like, man, this guy's batting 30% of the time. He actually like does something productive, man. He's like the best ever, you know, like not many sports right. had that sort of like success rate. And, uh, yeah, I like that idea. Same with basketball, man. Just, LeBron James misses a lot of shots. You know? Right. So, Jordan a, said, it was Jordan, oh, you don't, you don't make any of the shots you don't take. So uh, so thank you, Michael Jordan. You're part of Trinity's <laughs> determinedness to try to make better records. You know, I really think that's true in some ways. But that's so much of what any endeavor is, is failure. And most people have this thing that that's bad. And failure isn't bad. You don't move forward if you don't fail, right? Mm-hmm. Failure is part of the... The equation that is what you're trying to do. It's both the problem and the answer. Like you can't have it. You can't progress or move forward without it. And like, it's it's interesting that so many people have this anxiety and fear of that. But if you embrace it, it's just part of it. And then you, are, it, overall, you're successful because you persevere through it and move with it. And like it, that base that baseball analogy is really good. I like that. <laughs> Thirty percent of the time, that's <laughs> you're doing something. But the, if you look at a batter as a thirty percent average, you're not you're not dogging them. You're like, wow, that's good. <laughs> like, it's all perspective, I guess. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I think that's like uh, again, it's like if you're going to take something from that world, and that can just sort of apply to a lot of things. And so I appreciated that. I think it, it's something that I, I haven't grown bitter against sports. I have my interest in that is you know every year weaned off, but most of that's derived from more competitive nature of things and that. Right. Seeing that that's the most productive use of my energy and time. You know, it's like I, I still see bandmates and friends who after their team loses, it's sort of a, you know, it's like a, their older dog died or something. You know, it's tough. So, right. you know, I can still, I'm a Steelers fan. And even last year, like, I don't even care. And there was a couple of games where I had to like step outside. I'm just like, well, I don't even know why I'm having a heart attack right now. Uh, so we all have that competitive nature too, which, you know, you don't want to lose that. There's something good in there too with music to keep that up. I think it's a, Competitions about raising each other up and necessarily right. uh, becoming getting on top, right? And I think that's uh, I do like that as well. Well, is it? And yeah, and it's interesting. There's this um whole Bruce Lee philosophy of taking that comp- the competitive nature and like turning it inward, so you can still have that and like. But now it's you competing against yourself in a way. And when it comes to um, an expression like music or art there's no right or wrong way to do it. And there's no 
better or worse way to do it other than to your expectation, right? Like maybe it didn't come out the way you wanted it to, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Like if you look at so many, like just music itself, the Ramones compared to like Bach, back, return back, like it's a completely different form of expression and conveyance of an emotion, but you can analyze one for days and same with the other in just a different way. So it's, there's like this, where does the competitive drive go other than like inwards to better formulate whatever that output is? Yeah, I think I do like that one. Yeah, the, to reverse the, the competition inward on yourself. I think that's really important. So it's like, that's that self-reflection thing. I think that we've all had to sit with in some ways for sure, especially over the last year of what does that self-reflection mean? Right. And yeah, like how... <laughs> Yeah, it really is important. Sure. I think that's like a big part. I think that's why a lot of bands didn't necessarily come out with stuff or, or they're, I hope they're sitting on things because they've had a chance to reflect as a band about maybe why it's important to keep making music and what type of music that is. Right. I do. I do like that. It's inter- it's also it's kind of like the Joe Strummer input output thing. It's hard to put out if you don't take stuff in and when you're kind of in one spot to reshift how you take things in. You know what I mean? It's 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 a little more inward and I think more difficult of a of a feat than going out and experiencing things and being influenced by the ether of whatever you're at or wherever you're at, you know, like uh, the go on a crazy road trip and come back with a couple songs about it seems a lot more likely than <laughs> um, sitting in your apartment watching Netflix like. It is a very tough place to be inspired. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I never really thought of that. That's sort of uh lack of inspiration, even some sense of travel, you know, vacationing. Uh, I had a really powerful experience uh, not that long ago. I was, I was driving back to Spencer, Ohio, which is sort of in southern Madonna County. Right. And so I had this realization that I had never sat in silence for, for the longest time, I think. I just, I always, when I had these road trips, I'm always listening to the radio, NPR, podcast, something. And, like, I have kind of forgot, you know, wait a second, let me just turn this off and see what happens. And I think... It actually forced a lot of ideas that came out that I, I had obviously been sitting at bay with. Mm. Uh, and even like I had this, this realization of like, I think I need more silence for self-reflection as opposed to like, that's powerful. And I think hopefully, yeah, like you're not getting that from standing at your phone or looking at Netflix and all that stuff. I think we're all exhausted from that. Right. That experience too. I think that's yeah. my hope when music comes back that that's a huge part of why there's a resurgence is because people, the, the distractions that, we all know as musicians, we're keeping people out of uh, venues at night. I think people are a little burned out on those. And I hope that they're ready to sort of embrace that change. I know I am, you know, and I'm, I'm, I can certainly be one to blame for that as well, where I didn't come to shows where I could have at times because I was like, ah, I can just sort of relax and watch anything I want, <laughs> right. you know, which is sort right. of tough. Uh, and, and we're all inspired when people come out too. So I hope that's a big thing with, live music is like, we need, we need people to support too. It's a, it's a, it's a give and take there. You know, I think of pro wrestling, I don't know if you watch pro wrestling and all are aware, but like they've been doing wrestling matches now for months with no fans. And right. that's the strangest thing I've ever seen it. It kind of works, but man, it's just like, I don't know how it can work. You need that, that give and take, you know, even if it's yeah. booing or something, at least there's some sort of uh, real realism to the, the experience. And so if that was uh, really like, so my friend, uh, do you know Michelle Gall from the band Mimi Arden up in Cleveland? I, no, I don't. Okay, well, Michelle Gall is a singer-songwriter and um, super talented. And did when the pandemic hit, 
I'm going to golf spiel for a second. She uh, she started this thing called Virtual Shows CLE, which is I started doing a lot of podcasts to promote that. And mm-hmm. um, they would get three people, and they would do a singer and the songwriter or singer in the round, right? So they and you donate five dollars to get the link, and it all went to the artist, and it got super successful and helped out a lot of people during the initial shutdown. So much so it became its own like nonprofit with the Bright Winter Festival, but um. She started a podcast, and I think they only did one episode. I think it's called Shell's Tells. And the first episode was Michelle Gall rationalizing her experience with uh, um, WWE. And it was Gall, Gall with Raw, or Raw, Gall Goes Raw, or something like that. <laughs> but it was the for, personally, it was my favorite thing to come out of 2020. And um, they talk about that. And uh, my uh, Cody and Pat and my grand band, we've talked about that. And it's weird. And it's it's almost like uh, with like the in the related more to music, it's almost like you have to bring that energy that isn't there. So the viewer sees that normal reaction. Right. Steve, uh, uh, um, Josh, Josh from uh, um, smoke um, smoking popes and I were going on a bit about that. And he was saying, like, it's when you do something with no audience, you got to bring that energy as if it is there. And it's such a different mindset from what you're used to. And in a way, it's kind of a, it kind of goes on that self-reflection of what do you need to be, to, to have that, that, that level of performance or that level of comfortability to dive into a performance. And uh, it's kind of a weird trickle down of like, what is entertainment? Well, you let people enter and then you, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a, sure, yeah. it's a weird, it's a weird way to shift thinking of that. And that may have been a jumbled thought, but I recommend why, checking out God's podcast. <laughs> no, well, I think that's, that's super relevant to like the concert film that we did because, uh, you know, it's, it, although we've, as a band, we've done sort of those in studio kind of, you know, spots where there's no crowd necessarily. There's been right. a handful of those, you know, and that sort of cool, in itself but to be in a space with a history of like howard's that where there's just it's just empty you know and sort of how do you feed off of that energy of the crowd and i think what we did is we embraced the the space you know we embraced the the brick and the the, like the the history and then we we brought you know we projected all the art around us so we were sort of like immersed in the the lighting and so you know every song the lights matched the art so it felt like we were sort of forced into that world and i think that helped us perform in a way that we didn't feel like we were staring at no one, you know, it was right. definitely weird. I mean, there's times of, you know, I was, I was actually the one who ended up editing, editing the, uh, the film. There's a lot of footage where you can tell the guys when I'm trying to look at their eyes, they don't really know what to do with it. You know, you're kind right. of looking for that sort of connection with the fans and it's not there, you know? And so I, you know, I edit those out, you know, cause thankfully we can, you can creatively do that, but you know, there's times where you can be like, I just don't know where to look like the song's over. Right. You know, sort of <laughs> do we look at each other, you know, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, but I try to tell them to get into performance base idea to feel like you were more of a character in the, in the, in the world. You know, we, we wore all the same clothes and like in the sense of just black, you know, I think that's important too. I think that's something it gets like that sports thing. I think there's a mm-hmm. reason okay. why you're wearing these outfits. Right. I mean, it seems a little right. silly, you know, and some of it helps cause like you don't want to tackle the wrong guy or something, but there's certain sports where, you know, baseball is pretty easy to figure things out, you know, but there's that, that uniform, it's a uniform. It's like the uniformity of, feeling like you're a collective unit's important. I've been trying to, even as an artist, embrace some of that, which it's hard when you're changing members. But I think with us, we're all very settled now. This will probably be the first time that we've had 
people who are all planted in a certain way that we can build off of this a little bit too. And I like that. And yeah. I do like the uniform approach because it, 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 it takes away, you have to think about those things, right? They're not necessarily, shouldn't be that important part of your prep. You know, what am I wearing? What are we doing? You just like, Oh, we're all wearing the same thing because it's about the music and the space. And we're, so I think that was kind of fun to try that. We've never really done that before. And it, it takes away the visual, like, Oh, that guy looks interesting and puts you more in the perspective of, everything mm-hmm. and like uh it's I, I talked to um kevin eastman uh the guy who uh, co-created ninja turtles and like we went on a bit about that when you look at each one of those characters in i don't know it's relevant because of the comic thing um yeah. e- you don't really there's no visual difference really it's the personality that pulls through and like when you're uniform like that that's where what like oh what it, what your bass player is saying is really re- relevant to the whole thing, but there's that unique voice on that in that field, right? And like the kind of touch upon the recording a little bit, because I've seen I've seen multiple multiple versions of Trino leaves, and like this one in particular, the bass player he got is amazing, and uh, how him and your sax player and you create this space. Like I think this is like perfect, like. And going back through some of the um, older recordings to hear the get ready for this and that space is there and like I, there's just something about this new record where it's just right and maybe that is that lack of guitar and like maybe it's just those years of prepping towards it but it's really really well done I mean, thank you I think that was something I mean I've actually known uh, our bass player Steven Guerrero for really since he, the, the initial inception of Trino Leaves we had sort of did this really strange live improvisation thing record where it was just, he was doing ambient looping with his bass. And I had really was not aware of that even as sort of an approach. And so, um, mm, so he almost I was had... always, so he was really like this enigma, yeah. this really one man show. He ended, up, he ended up getting a drummer at some point and it was just, it was this beautiful thing. And he's, he has a new record coming out. He's, he has a project called flat earth agenda, <laughs> which he's actually been struggling to change. He was, he like, he, he's been out for years. He's like, oh, this was actually sort of a joke when I did it. It was kind of like, people don't even know. And he's like, oh, no, like everyone sort of like knows. <laughs> and part of me is like, dude, that's fine. Like, it might get you good press. Like some of these people might just start listening to your albums, you know. But, Did it take off? Is it doing but, better? But not really. He, I don't think he's had any excess followers because of that. But, uh, uh, but, but in some ways, like people, when he tells them the name, they're kind of just like, oh, no, or something, you know. And so yeah. uh, that's awesome. but I think uh, <laughs> but, but really drawn to his music, his use of melodies and creativity has always just been wonderful. And I think we've had so many different bass players who brought different approaches to the instrument. And for him, I think it was a risk that to bring him in because of like, it's, you know, he really hadn't performed in sort of that in a lot of the event, the genres and some of the stuff that we had done before. I think he's actually a metal guy, like death mm-hmm. metal, like just sort of really into that sort of early eighties, like nineties stuff. And so he, um, has that background, which is awesome too. I mean, our sax player actually, comically, those two are the most biggest metalheads you you know have ever met, and they like sort of you know bond on that. But their music is sort of refined in a way that sort of count is like sort of counterintuitive to that. So it's interesting. Really cool. Metal is a weird phenomena where intricacy and preciseness is rad. You know what I mean? Like when you yeah. think of the genre, you think of long hair and just going crazy and like mm-hmm. headbanging and like this kind of, but musically it's very very tight and 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 focused and like 
not it at all what is perceived with it. And like it's I guess that, you know, that's the case with so many different genres or types of art or like movements is what's perceived is not actually what it's about. And um, I remember having um, conversations with your your sax player at that one. Um, uh, uh, we played in um, Ypsilanti. What was that house venue? Oh, I can't think of it. Oh, the oh, it's like uh, uh, oh, I kind of forgot about that. Uh, yeah, I forgot. That, yeah, the little house show there. I can't right, remember right. what it was called though. But yeah. it was rad. I remember just talking theory with him out in the back, mm-hmm. and um, God, uh, oh, it's gonna bother me because uh, um. <laughs> uh, uh, after hours radio that's what it was yeah that, that was the band so that, that, was, the that, band. that was the space yeah and the space had a name that was uh i talked to it was like shack or something like that or something like house i can't remember what it was but that was uh, actually a great show they, that I was. Remember we had we had two cool. saxophone players play on the our one of our checks swamp troll um i think that was that was really fun i think there was a band called speak mahogany i think right they were, and they're so good so good and so their sax player sat in and just, you know, we're like, yeah, this one's more or less a C minor. There's a little, little change. And, uh, that was really cool. Um, but I think, yeah, like Garrett's knowledge of music is so extensive, you know, he sort of, he throws a fair loop. I remember when we first met him, you know, he would have like a grateful dead shirt on his really long beard and super scruffy. And he's like, yeah, I want to jam guys. And I was like, all right, that's cool. I mean, I, I've met right. this guy before, right? Yeah. This guy, you know, sort of, he's like, I play sax, you know, and get the dead shirt. Let's go, let's jam, you know, but he actually, he sat in with us at a gig at Howard's and he, and so he had a history with some of our other, other musicians, the touch bass, cause he was getting his master's in um, music um, at the university. And, but he sat in with us in the entire set, you know, an hour and a half, you know, sort of just sat there, listened, he didn't play a lot, but he did some things. And I was kind of like, okay, I didn't expect that. That was really cool. And then, so learn more about him and his knowledge. And, you know, even the first radio thing we did, uh, an interview, like people, they were asking us our gen, like, what are our influences and things? You go down the line, and everyone's sort of saying what they like. And I remember he mentioned like four or five bands that I had never heard of in my entire life. And it sounded like they were just, you know, you know, un- unborn cow, you <laughs> right. know, just sort of like just the worst <laughs> things you could think. You know, these very brutal names. You're just, I was like, okay, I think he, is he joking? Oh no, he's serious. <laughs> like, and he's like, oh yeah, I'm really like, he, he has these bands, like their vinyls and stuff. So, but that's really great to have that mix of influences. And I think it's something that this record was, we embraced that again. You know, I think uh, there's so much sax on this record and um, the individual who actually, and I attributed some of that to, um, there's a, a, a bass sax player out of Toledo. Um, there's a project called Rover. They used to call Silent Lions, but uh, his name's uh, Dean Tartaglia. And uh, he played some sax on our last previous record on like three or four tracks. He just came in like wearing like a dust coat and like a cowboy hat and just sort of like played on four tracks and laughed. It was like really cool. I was like, it almost seemed like I have a movie. <laughs> yeah, right. And so we were thank we were really thankful and like it was a really cool process and like I don't respect Dean. We we sort of crossed paths before and it was a cool collaboration. And I think uh I was happy with that. But then once we did that, I was like, well, well damn, we're kinda are we committed to having a saxophone these songs now? Because we playing without we're like, oh, this isn't as cool. So that's sort right. of where Garrett came in fill that void to try it and we committed to it i mean it's sort of i love this new record there's so much saxophone on it i think we we approached it in so many different ways even sonically the way he plays uh, it's, it can be excessive and almost non-existent you know depending on where you're at in the album and i think that's something that very appreciative of his work on that you know it's something that i tried to guide a lot of that directed him the opening track 2020 is a, very much a an improvisational just ambient track and I, I was actually talking to him while he was playing giving him cues for 
like what our characters were experiencing. I was like, all right, they're, all right, they're being born. Like here's the teenage years, like they're, they're a little angsty. And he would start mm-hmm. to just push that sort of yeah. tension in the instrument. And I just thought that was like, for me, that's as cool as it can get, you know, as opposed to like, man, that, that was a groovy solo, you know, which I love that stuff. But, you know, I was like, cool to take a, almost a film approach to things, which I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to make movies. It's just, it's just so much work. It's right. so, so many things involved, you know, so I'm trying to make my, you know, my own movies through this band at times. So in film is a whole nother monster of things you got to prep and it's, to make film in comparison, when you look at making a film to making an album, you're like, oh, album's nothing. You know, like the amount of budget and and planning that goes. I'm working. One of my friends is a. Uh, they're putting together a, a film and just listening to how they describe that is. I, I'm like, I would never want to even begin. Like it's hard enough to get three people to show up in one place. <laughs> yeah, it really is. No, I, I appreciate that. I think uh, a good friend of mine named Jake Eckstein who. Um, we actually did some soundtrack work for his first film. Uh, he was a film major in Bowling Green and uh, got this film called Apothecary's uh, Cage. It's for this, it's for this experimental film, um, but we did some cool stuff with that. And he was a serious filmmaker. He moved to New Mexico. Uh, he's been out there for about four years now. And uh, you know, he just put out a film called The Art of War. And it's like this, Whoa. It's, a, it's a legitimate uh, action film. Like he, it's a 15 minute piece, but he worked with like, you know, two dozen you know, fighters, choreographed it. Um, you know, scheduled it all, got it filmed, right. the, the audio, just so much voiceover work. There's just so much in there. And so like, when you realize the amount of work that goes into something even like that, you know, you realize like that's something special. You have to be a crazy person. To make right. And I guess right. I'm not, I'm not that crazy really in some ways, you know, I, I'm crazy enough to make an album, but yeah. there's another level of like passion and craziness that I just love about that. That sounds awesome, though, as a film, though. Is it based on, like, the Sun Tzu's Art of War? Right, yes. So he, he took the, the basic narrative of that film and then just sort of wrote a, a short story. It all take, takes place in, like, this sort of bar, weird kind of fight club place. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of it's a meet of Eastern and Western ideas relative. There's, like, two characters who one's American and one, I believe, is, is Chinese. And so they kind of have this sort of uh, buddy vibe and sort of, you know, fighting off these bikers and stuff. You know, it's great sort of campy right. action. But, uh for him, it's like, you know, I, I, in Tesla, like, even as a filmmaker, there's a, there's a level of like failure and stuff too, because you don't know how to expect things to go. And like, is this, was this a film that was like supposed to be my opus or was this a, a part of the puzzle that's going to get me to that place in which I want to make a great film, you know? And I think, yeah, that's interesting. Dan, I try to tell a lot of artists that like, it's about building the piece of the puzzle. And like, I've made a lot of albums that failed that no one listened to. And some of them I can attribute that got the least listens, I think is some of our best work. And it's just right. sort of one of those weird things that you just don't have control of. And if you just move on to the next thing, you're going to, it's always going to be better. I think. Right. And I think when you, if you're making stuff that's not as good as your previous work, that's when you have to start to think maybe it's time to move on. But I think it's so rare for that to happen. I mean, how's that even possible? You know, if you, how could you get worse by doing something more? You know, exactly. sort of a, that's, that's a, I don't know. I don't think it's possible. I think when you, when you're really honing in on something and fine tuning it, it's only going to get better. It's going to be different. It's going to defy maybe expectations of someone who liked something previously, but yeah. it's only going to get better. <laughs> and like, it's interesting with the film to think of that. Is this my opus? You know what I mean? Like, I'm, that's like, a, that's a rough spot to be in. Cause if you, I mean, but not at the same time, cause you want to put everything into this thing as if it were, but not expect it to be, because if it is, then you're done. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Where do you go from there? Correct. Right. I mean, that's a danger. I think, Actually, I think of uh, Billie Eilish and her brother. 
he has one of the greatest quotes in music history and I hope it holds up because, you know, that, that last record they put out won like 12 Grammys or something, you know, right? right? Just unheard of. And I think when they asked him, he just went, I, I, like, we're done. I don't know what, like, what am I, like, how, what are we supposed to do? Like, I don't know how we can't really do something that's more successful than this. So I think now I would hope they just make music that they like because right. that's enough, right? And I think that will be, that that's going to sustain I think that's the only way because otherwise you would just see everything as failure because there's no way you're going to do that again. I mean, I, yeah, maybe they will, but I don't think that's possible. There's just <laughs> the stars aligned in a certain way for people to really care about this thing. And it wasn't that that album was that much better than anything else, but it just sort of had its moment. And I think um, a lot of artists have to deal with that idea too, especially when you, you see stuff that's successful and you maybe feel as though it's not worthy of that success. You know, that's a struggle and you really have to be cautious of that. I think that's something that, it gets because if you're worried about that, you're just not working on your craft, you know, and right. so it's a waste of time, you know, blaming others and things. And so, right, that the, gonna... um, Billy's like, um, career I, it reminds me of like Nirvana in a way, you know, what I mean, there's like this mm-hmm. this thing that sticks out and it's this whole other subculture. And like, well, after what, um, uh, um, smells like teen spirit, um, then there was uh, in utero, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it was the complete opposite for everyone who liked into it for the pop thing, who was buying flannel to be cool. And then it became like, wait, what are they doing again? And like, there's plenty of great songs on that and that record holds up, but comparatively it's not the same production, not the same. Yeah. I mean like not the same like radio aesthetic. So like, I I agree with you. I think either they're going to do something that um, they completely love and it's about them or just something because you're right. Well, that there's no way that do that again. Well, there, I guess there is, but is that going to be as authentic? You know what I mean? It might not be, I think. And maybe that's why that record sold so much because people at the end of the day, I think were drawn to the authenticity of it. Right. It really, it didn't feel like there was any bullshit on that record. I, I my, my son loved that record. I listened to it actually. Sort of, I've been able to dive into pop music and have a different appreciation for it because there's a place for it. And I think, you know, her stuff, even thematically is, is right. really solid. It's introspective. It's fair to have that an artist at that point you know and so i think it could also be interesting to see her process as an artist and that's what would draw me to her now as more of a a spectator you know and sort of trying to see how she deals with this because can go one way or the other and i think that's uh it's all right so i'd let she'd be fine if she just says i'm done and goes <laughs> and does something else you know so right um was it a so the kind of shift gears um so with a xylem there's the opposite, right? There's folum, which is where the plant to makes glucose and like sugar in the leaves, right? And mm-hmm. disperse it to the rest of the uh, the rest of the plant. Do you think that might be like part of the the sequel here? Yeah, I think that's <laughs> actually for us the follow up because again, this was the first is it was this this world the first album is really about world building, creating the space to exist in that's out that's not just the music to to been characters, uh, reoccurring themes. And I think that was really the focus of the first was like that more life and death aspect. I think what we're going to see now with the follow-up is more to really dive into the world that we've created and see the conflict and see the, the wars that are going on here and trying to see where that can lead us. And I think, uh, that's exciting for me to sort of in many ways embrace the fruits of all of this stuff that happened in the first one. You know, we touch upon that a little bit with the song visionary canary. Um, so where he sort of eats of this fruit that is derived from the, our characters and sort of it gives him these introspective powers of flight and sound and sort of things like that. So it's like 
the next one's going to be far more action related, far more in many ways, like what a sequel should be is the, re the, the resolution to a lot of the, the themes that we uh, introduce. I think that's something I'm drawn to as a storyteller. And, you know, certainly every movie, we know how bad endings can take a movie that we really liked and you're kind of going, I don't know what that was, you know? And so right. I, for us, I think it's going to be fun to go back and build upon all this other stuff that we've done, work with Andy again. And we also have a process now too. So we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We actually have a wheel right. that we can, we can put on the next wheel now. So that's really fun to think about. And, you know, we hundred percent produce this entire thing, you know, mix it, mastered it ourselves. And I think that's free us, frees us up to continue to take risks and try cool stuff too, which I'm excited because the constraints of a studio space is hard time, money, right. Uh, even if it's free, just people's time, you don't want to take advantage. There's always that, you know, thing in the back of your head. That's like, I don't know if I need to take it. I think it's good. I think there's something really freeing about embracing technology and, uh, forcing yourself to be your own critic. And I think you'll get better sounds, you know, and better results. Um, the mic I'm talking on now, I was like, I, that's what I use on the record. And I said, Hey, you know what? I got no place to record it better than my house. You know? So that's where, right. you know, all the vocals were done in my side room, you know, where my kid was playing Minecraft, you know, it's sort of it's a bizarre. <laughs> it's a, it's a weird sort of contrast to the, you know, past, the past record that was all done in a 107 year old church. And, there's a documentary crew there the whole time, you know, everywhere. So there wasn't a lot of that space to really feel comfortable. And that record, while I, I still really appreciate that record, it's very different. You know, right. It's definitely more of a When's a that state. doc going to come out? Sorry. The That's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. So, uh, so PBS started, they, they had got funding for this documentary and it's, it's called uh, waiting to arrive. And so Joe Goodman, um, who's a producer who's in Nashville now, um, was here in Bowling Green and had done some work. He put out a film about Neil Armstrong, um, recently that, um, had won some awards, but, you know, when he moved to Nashville, the, the documentary wrapped up filming, um, but still needed some editing and some other stuff. And so, um, the pandemic hit, um, Megan Murray, who had done a lot of the filming and so editing, um, had, had had to take on other work and the funding wasn't there to necessarily film that the rest of the, the edit. And so, um, wonderfully PBS reached out to me and Joe and we were able to hand off the film to us now. And so we have the ability to sort of release it in our own context. Nice under our own rights and everything. So it frees up the film a bit in a way. Um, and our goal is to put that out by the end of the year. So it's a big thing for us too. It's a, it's a labor of love. It's a, it was filmed across three years. Um, you can really see the band from, you know, from four, four piece to where we are now. I think the, the, the documentary wrapped up in November of 2019. Uh, that was the last time we had played any shows, you know, and uh, the form of the band that made this record was actually, that was the first time the five of us played together was at that show. And so it was like symbolic of like the new form of us, you know, taking off. So I'm excited for it. It's a very personal film. It's really about the band as a whole the history, what it means to be in a band nowadays, uh, the complexities of family, friends, uh, emotions of moving on, changing members, um, successes and failures, you know, and seeing it and how do you continue to move on? I think that's how people would be interested to see it for that. It's not really like, the making of our record. That's not really that interesting. You know, it's like the space that we recorded it in was beautiful and had a lot of history. And there literally was like a ghost moment too, where like, it's long story short, the Sean Daly who owns that space, it's called Mohawk studios in Sandusky and it's a place called Hale Live, but we're sharing this very powerful moment. He's talking about his father and I'm sort of asking Sean, you know, how do I move on with this band? Like I have a family, like how far do you push this? You know, and he, right. he said he had, he had a failed marriage because he played too much. He was living in Japan, did a lot of stuff. He's an interesting person. His dad was a traveling uh, keyboardist for years, you know, played some really great like bluegrass juke band, um, semi-famous regional guy. And then once he had a son, he kind of like 
stopped playing and still kind of love to play. Um, but there's a song that we were working on in that studio. It's called uh, Belief Will Be the Death of Me. It's a song about death. My grandfather passed away years ago, and Calvin and I had sort of uh, bonded on that song. And there's a, I play Rhodes on it, and he told me, he's like, man, my dad, I feel like I just channels things about my dad, like hearing that Rhodes. And, hmm. and I, we're, they were filming it at the time. And the moment he said that, like the light started flickering like all over the place. And, we, and he's like, that's never happened before. And it was the weirdest thing. It's in, and it'll be in the film. It's sort of, there's some strange things that happened in the film. It's like part of me is excited to see some of this again because it's been years. You forget, you know, it's right. like you all kind of, you, it's amazing how much even three or five years ago is you feel like a different person, you know. So, Especially with this um, past year. <laughs> this, yeah, this last year has been like a blink. And so, uh, but we're excited. We love, our goal is really to release it, submit it to film festivals and maybe, find ways to play it in certain cities and then do a show follow up, you know, try to yeah. reach out to like art galleries, even film houses, non-traditional stuff, you know, even like negative space could be a beautiful space to, to, to do like a, you know, it's we a, we can project it, man. Yeah. An hour long film, you know, we, we create that environment and then we do a performance of like, you know, the comic and things after. And I think that's what we're really trying to look towards for this year, especially the fall, you know, cause like we're going to do some outdoor stuff this year, I think just because we want to, we just got to make music and start right. to build that vibe. But I think once we get indoors again, we're going to try to take that approach and I'm too old to be playing in bars anymore. And like, you know, there's a time and place for that, but I, you know, that's what I have to pet for. And everyone's like, Oh, I gotta get, get your chops. I'm like, I gotta start figuring out how to like stay up past nine 30. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, this schedule of being able to go to bed early and sleep in, I'm sure it's different with a, having a family. Sure. But, um, but it's but it's definitely different. No, it really is, man. It's, it's like a different approach. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, man, just, just keep on sleeping. I'm a little sleep deprived with the kid and stuff. But at the same right. time, uh, you know, it doesn't lend itself to the rock and roll lifestyle to be feeling that <laughs> vibe at like 930. And so, uh, but for us, it's like, well, let's embrace that. Let's play at seven. Let's play at eight. Let's do stuff earlier. Let's, this doesn't have to be something that we're just trying to sell alcohol with. I think right. that's for me, morally, it's I'm not against alcohol. It's, it's it's a device, but I don't want I don't think the music should be correlated to that. And I right. feel like it'd be nice to embrace to embrace that a bit more. And so the tradition is there. I'm fine with it, but I, I don't want that to be the the end all. No, I think that's a really cool. Um, it's like a Mike Watt from the the Minutemen. The Minutemen had this concept of jamming Econo. So jamming in the middle, having shows in the middle of the day, so everyone can mm-hmm. go to work in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, that the Fugazi had this whole thing where they wouldn't be in Rolling Stone because it promoted alcohol and like that, that, that duality of like, this doesn't need to be that, even though like as a bar musician, the reason you're there is to to move alcohol, which is always a weird, just like position to be in yourself. Cause you're like, I'm here to promote stuff and make people feel good. And, I guess, you know, enable people. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, that, that, that is part of it. I, 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 that's a part of that, that dialogue you have when you're reflecting is like, this is actually how we want to exist. You know, right. a lot of us are even in positions where, you know, with families and just significant others, it's like, what's the point of going into a world which doesn't really cater to that, either, yeah. you know, and sort of, we're not young, we're not kids. We're not trying to make this an extension of our, our college social network. You know, and there's a lot of that. I've been down the road. There's a lot of bands that, that's even why they draw is because they just know a lot of people who are 22 years old. Right. You know, so, yeah. And that's great. But I think we're being serious about it. I think you got to start thinking outside the box and how to do that stuff. You know, and even um, just looking at different spaces right now, I'm actually talking with the, the director of the Wood County Historical Museum who has this incredible space outside of town. There's just so much space outdoors. There's plenty electric. It's like this really an interesting space. And so like just thinking of like how, why can't music be experienced there? You know, I think right. it's like, I, that's what I'm trying to work on now with our promoters. You know, I'd love to talk to you about some stuff, even on Cleveland, trying to figure out ways to 
embrace some non-traditional places to so people can experience music because they're going to want it but i don't know if they're going to want to cram into a building quite yet yeah no i'd love to figure some stuff out i've been trying to do that myself here a little bit but like winter's been like well let's wait to figure that out yeah Um, so we're we're in a good position i think as a country that we're no matter what the it is it's a waiting game now and you know there's there's talk of everyone having access by may it's going to be here soon. Yeah. We've right. all learned how quick time goes. So I think right. May's going to be here like next right. week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. This month's flown by February yeah. flew by too. Just, yeah. <sighs> Weird. But, um, uh, <laughs> to kind of wrap it up. Um, yeah. if you had to, uh, to, so you mentioned like the kind of, uh, archetypes that surround the two trees, the willow and Arden that are characters, right? There's, um, cultural symbolism within those types of trees mm-hmm. um can you elaborate on that yeah i think through researching uh the willow tree really um and that's something that you know we've been drawn to before it just it looks and it also i love that it has this sort of hair quality true right it sort of right. has this like kind of vibe of like a big wig and but <laughs> the symbolism behind the willow tree is it, it represents the ability to withstand like monumental like wind weather it's it's this very flowing thing and so it has this ability to take things on now might not be happy about it and just it's actually a very sort of naked tree it says it's not a very strong tree right right but secretly is very strong and it's actually stronger than some of these other trees that are very sturdy like elder is this very sturdy tree right so, and so it has more of a bush <laughs> vibe like the, yeah. the it's very bushy it's like it's a it's a it's not a flowing thing. It seems very strong, right? It's sort of more of a male and playing with the, the some of the traditional male female dichotomies of and not wanting to do that because these are anthropomorphic characters. There's not sex here, but there is duality. And I think right. to have trees that seemingly were so different. And by looking at them, you might even interpret them as being the opposite, right? So you would assume the outer can withstand more and it cannot actually. Hmm. And Willow is the one that can actually withstand more. And so I played on that with the characters where you know, Willow is more emotional more fragile in the emotional state and the expression of the fears but is equally as strong as elder who is trying to keep us cool and the perception of strength but you know he's the one who initially loses all the leaves on him and sort of has more of a his weaknesses are shown before willows and i think that's something that i thought was really cool to play with you know no that's a cool that's a cool like this kind of like this tough tree can only withstand certain things like smaller things can take it down and like it's kind of like the proverb um, um there's this it was another Bruce Lee thing I read um um a strong wind will knock down a sturdy tree where like bamboo can flex yes and, and bend back and then bend back up or you spot know. on that's spot on that's exactly the theme right yeah and so in game can you apply that to a lot of different things true right because that was the right. thing like I didn't like it gets a little self-indulgent with the tree thing like all right this guy's really reinforcing it but I'm like man I <laughs> But I'm really drawn to that. I mean, I just right. am. I think there's a, there's such an interesting part of Earth. I mean, they're just sort of this unique thing. We don't. There's no trees on any other planet that we're aware of. You know, it's just like yeah. what are these things? They're so <laughs> their history and their uh, part of me believes they have some sort of awareness that maybe we don't understand. You know, and so his um, tree, you know, it's got a tree in it. <laughs> even oh damn, that's a good one. That's going to be one of those weird mixtapes. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> Um, but I, but I, yeah, I mean, I think again, that was a really big part of researching that was to try to get on, like, homage to the, the nature of trees and how they're used through so many religions and, you know, the tree of knowledge, which is, right. you can take it, you can take it to a lot of places and eating of the forbidden fruit, you know, 
to me, that was when he eats of the forbidden fruit, it actually is not a negative. It's actually, you know, it gives him increased knowledge of perception and flight and you know, freedom from the constraints of his polo shirt and his slacks. You know, it's like, uh, it was definitely fun to play with that. You know, I can relate to those things. And so I, my hair is now longer than it's been 12 years. And you know, I, it's like, it's like embrace your inner weirdo too. I think that's really nice to do. And so, well, it's almost like a kind of, you can look at that on a ton of different levels, but even just like on the societal, societal acceptance of, um, the, the um, psychedelics, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, did you ever dive into Carl Jung? No, he's kind of one of those where like, he, he sneaks into other people that I read, right, you know, right, and right. sort of, it's always one of those parallels. I think, uh, like Alan Watts is another one who's like, okay. Someone's like, I don't know, I need to read this guy. I feel like this other guy, right, is just like pretty much saying what he said, you know, in certain right. ways. But, um, but yeah, what, what what do you feel like? What was well, Young's um, sort of parallel? Young, Young's got all these archetypes, right? And he was like a, a counterpart to Floyd, uh, not Floyd. Floyd's a <laughs> dude, Freud. Um, mm-hmm. But he had this whole thing about trees having this bisexual nature and that mm-hmm. they're Latin, um, in Latin, the endings of the names of trees are masculine. And even though their gender can be fe- like, it's just, it kind of plays off what you were saying is the only yeah. reason I bring it up. Sure. Um, and it, it, I don't know. That's one thing I love about what, what you guys do is like, it's much more deeper than just like a weird trippy thought. You know what I mean? Like, uh, <laughs> it's not just like, well, this sounds cool. It's really well thought out. And like, I, there's fairly, there's a plenty amount of jam bands that kind of take that route and like, don't really pay as much attention to not to categorize you guys as a jam band, but um, we're inspired by those for sure. You know, we, we dipped our toes in that world. You know, it was never right. something that I thought would happen, but all of a sudden we're playing three hour shows. Right. Know, some, some point I was like, well, I don't know how this happened, but okay. Well, know, it's, so. It seems like when you <laughs> genre bend, like you guys genre bend, we genre bend, like, and as soon as you do that, as soon as you hit like one type of style thing and go to another, people kind of throw you in that jam band category. Cause you're like, ah, oh, they do, they do everything. And, Sometimes it looks like they're 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 improving. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, I like that. Yeah, but it, it's the nature of the music. I, I am drawn to that. I think it's kind of cool. Plus, I mean, the idea of like, to me, you know, for us to be long story of a jam band was what we learned is like you can be really jam band in the context of your song, right? And and do it in a way that makes there's a reason why you're improvisationing, and there's a reason why you ended it because you're getting to this other place. And I think that's been really cool to approach as a musician that. Although improvisation that's entirely explorative is has its own place. I, I do like building a world to improv is to improv in and then get back to like being grounded, you know, in a right. way. And so and that also lets every song be different. <clears throat> yeah. You say the live the live stuff is not the same as the studio. And I think, you know, that, that's something that we've always done where it's like we're not gonna see us jam for three hours, but it's gonna be different than the last time you saw us. And we hear that a lot where it's like, Oh well, that was that's not you guys played the same set, but that was not even remotely the same. You know, I, I love that. It keeps right. us fresh too. You know, where tempo change, instrumentation change. Someone wants to use a different pedal tonight because they're just feeling it. You know, I love that shit. So I think that's kind of uh, flowing water pretty, doesn't pretty grow fun. stale. You know. Yeah, very much so. Was it? <laughs> but so that's what. What the whole point being? I love that you guys pay so much attention to that. Unlike other jam bands that kind of just write stuff and then, because like it, the improv is almost like a convert when you have a conversation. You and you bring up a point you don't necessarily have all the dialogue that you're going to have with individual written to end on a point, right? It's that happens and that's, that's the living part of it. Like you bring up a, a, a topic, 
you converse and then you end on some type of understanding or solution or conclusion. And like to do that musically in a way that's sticks to that narrative is really impressive. But, um, the whole reason I brought up the, the, um, archetypes of the trees and having you expand upon that, is there one or a different, um, a different, uh, I can't think of a, a breed of tree that you represent, <laughs> that you feel represents you? Oh, that's actually a really good question. I haven't thought of that. Yeah. Sort of the, what tree are you? What tree you know? are uh, you? Yeah. 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 No, like what, what tree are we inspired by traditionally? It really isn't one. I think it's more, uh, I never thought about that, but I think that's, uh, to me, it's always been, it's really any silhouetted tree has been sort of what we yeah. identify at because of what that represents and sort of it truly represents change and can at times even represent death. But I think there's something unique about that image that I'm still drawn to. And I think for us, it's like, um, yeah, we can almost be any type of tree. You know, that is like the, the fun thing. And many times that's more just what type of leaves are on it. But that's yeah. a good one, man. I'm glad you asked that. I have to think about that. <laughs> all right. Because I'm mean, looking at some of the logos, they're probably like, yeah, like, we're probably using maples all the time or something. You know, it'd be right. interesting to see. Uh, yeah, probably a maple. Let's just be real. I feel like there's a lot of those around. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Nice. Um, and last last thing, you mentioned this podcast you're uh, thinking on. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's something I'm committed to. I think for, I'm, I've been drawn to conversation radio, the format, long form, because I think that's really where you can dig into stuff and, you know, in ways that you just can't through even short form inter right. interviews. And so um, starting in April, we're going to launch some things through Trina Leaves. We don't know exactly what we're going to call it yet. Um, but really just uh, conversations based in around music, art, curation, the, the DIY approach, and really uniting I think are like the three most important things uh, for all of us to learn is building relationships between venues, promoters, and artists, and, and providing a resource for them to talk, learn from each other, and express themselves in ways that we can all sort of bring each other up. And I think that's something I'd really like to talk about and like, you know, relative things about success and defining those things and really just talking with people that I feel in the region, really a, an Ohio, Michigan focused thing to see that I, I'm just drawn to and want to learn like, you know, how are you making this work? You know, what, what can you share with us that can help us as well as a collective? I think that's like, I want to get more into the collective musician idea because it's hard for me to go to see shows and stuff. So right. I want to give back in a way that doesn't require me to have to be out at two in the morning trying to like talk to a band. It's just, I don't have those resources and I feel guilty sometimes and I want to give back yeah. in a different, in a different way and try to give people my experience through music, what I've learned over the last 10 years and then seek others who can help me learn and get better and hopefully do the same for them. You know, that's I think awesome. that's a, yeah, that's a cool way to do it. You know, it's like, it's like, that's what would draw that draws me to podcasts and even some of the more, it, you know, referencing even Joe Rogan in a sense of what draws me to something like that is there's, there's a quest for knowledge within that. That doesn't even matter who you're talking to, but there, you can take things away from that stuff that you can apply to your, your craft. And so, right. Uh, and, I'd love to help with that, you know, and do it in a way that uh, hopefully sounds good, looks good and uh, can help us just build more relationships and call attention to really creative people in this area. I think there's a lot of them. No, I think that's all. Cause like, as far as like what the, the the ten dollars you pay at the door, that which the band might get five, and like the by the time you get to to yak at them, you know what I mean? Like it's already like how you said it's already late, and is that going to be as beneficial as like taking a time during the day to have like if you're comparing Joe Rogan like a three hour conversation about how things work and how to think about things and like how to share your insights and gain upon theirs and like this and. So I, I think that that's going to resonate more than that, you know, little bit of yak in time at the end of the show. 
So that's yeah, I mean, like that's that's an important time, and I think we all really, as artists, want we want that. But it's just right. it's, my experience over the last really five years is I, I you lose that conversation relatively. Like, oh, hey guys, you really love that set. Cool. All right. Well, let me manically put all my gear away because right, I'm a psychedelic right. band. I, I'm <laughs> someone, and I'm a psychedelic band, so this is gonna take a while. And uh, <laughs> and this is a little expensive, so I can't just shove it in a suitcase. And then by the time I walk over the merch table, and then like I'm tired, and like I'm riding that high, and then sort of people are might be gone by then and like you got to get them in the moment and i think like trying to find even conversation with other bands is hard afterwards because you're just like uh, i, I want to have these conversations with them and they don't always these don't happen before the show because people are nervous and you're all kind of doing your own thing but i think uh it'd be great to bring people into bowling green and try to find a way for them to, to make bowling green more known for music again i think people forget that this town has the blacks and Arts festival which is it's one of the, the, the most uh you know wonderful festivals in the state it has been going for 25 years music from all over the world and the university has incredible new music uh, festival every year which brings people from all over and it's just there's a lot of history here and even the blues with heinz farm which is this legendary yeah. place that they're actually doing some stuff out again strange enough haven't seen any. so it's like so like the the swamp over here has got some history in music and we're trying <laughs> to we're trying to show our head enough to like bring some attention here and hopefully bring more more music and just more people trying to help that culture. I think even the Clazell Theater here, which has been legendary for a long time, is uh, has just been bought, and their focus is wanting to bring music here. And so I think sick. Um, there's a lot of that kind of happening right now. Because I the as far as my be uh, Bowling Green experience, it's only been Howard's, and like I think maybe uh I think maybe I went to that Java place with you and Jay once, but um mm-hmm. it 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 would have been like. I don't know, 10 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. it was a long time ago, but awesome, man. Well, Hey, thanks for, thanks for hitting me up. This has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate your time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for hanging out with me, man. No, I really appreciate it, Dave. No, like I uh, great conversation and, uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. Like that's half the struggle. Just, just keep doing it. Thanks. So, uh, hopefully we cross paths again and, uh, yeah, we'll definitely see it when we come to Cleveland this year for sure. So beautiful.